0: It's a great privilege to have this opportunity, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, Would you please join me in prayer before we begin? Father, thank you so much for um, everyone who is here and our brothers and sisters who are gone on the international trip or in other places around the world, Father, or around the states. I pray that you would uh, give them safe travels and speak to their hearts as they meet together. I pray for us here today, and I pray that you would be with me and help me as I speak your word. I pray that you would speak through me, that you would use me in spite of my own weaknesses, and that you would open up everyone's hearts today to the, to the hearing of your word, and that you would do a work in the hearts of everyone here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. On November 30th, in 1628, in Bedfordshire, England... Thomas and Margaret brought their newborn son, John, to be baptized. The Anglican priest poured water over the baby John's head, an act which was supposed to declare him innocent of his sins and a member of the church. But though John's life began with an act of piety, John himself was anything but pious. As a young boy, he was more foul-mouthed and mischievous and dishonest than any of his peers. And as a young man, he was the ringleader, in his own words, of all his friends in their mischief. After his marriage, he began to attend church due to the influence of his wife. And there, for the first time in his life, he felt guilt for his actions. But his guilt was short-lived, and he was glad to be rid of it. It was good for him that he could continue going on sinning uh, without being bothered by that guilt. John had concluded that he was beyond forgiveness and that if he wasn't going to get to heaven, he may as well have as much fun as possible before he went to hell. Most people who knew John probably agreed with that sentiment that God would never forgive him. He was infamous throughout the countryside uh, for being foul-mouthed and just completely vulgar. One day, uh, his neighbor's wife overheard him speaking with such vulgarity that she felt obligated to rebuke him. Now, by John's own account, this woman was no saint. Yet she told John that he was the ungodliest fellow that she had ever met in all her life, and that by his mere presence, that was enough to corrupt all the youth of their town. In the minds of everyone who knew him, John, whose full name was John Bunyan, was the last person who would ever be saved. Yet, as all of you know, God was not done with John Bunyan. As you all know, he would not only repent and be reformed, but go on to become a nonconformist minister and write what is perhaps the most famous allegory in the English language, the Pilgrim's Progress. John himself was astounded at the reach of God's grace and entitled his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Bunyan is not the only example of God's willingness to forgive anyone, even the most vile sinner. From John Newton to the Apostle Paul, we could recount hundreds of stories of God's limitless power to forgive even the worst sinner. Our text today is 2 Chronicles 33, and this text contains one such story of God's miraculous and unbelievable redemption. This chapter, 2 Chronicles 33, tells how Manasseh, the most wicked of all the kings of Judah, incredibly repented and found forgiveness. Manasseh's story speaks to the person who, like the young John Bunyan, believes he is too far gone to be saved. Are you here today holding off repenting because you think God cannot forgive you? Or perhaps you don't want to repent because you don't want to give up your sin. Manasseh's story speaks to both of these issues, but Manasseh's story also speaks to those who have already placed their faith in Christ. As a born-again Christian, do you ever experience guilt so crushing that you doubt you can ever restore your relationship with God? The lesson of Manasseh is this. God will forgive you, but you must humble yourself and repent. Now, why, however, this emphasis on repentance isn't God, after all, merciful and forgiving by nature? Well, that's true. But this, uh, our Manasseh story in 2 Chronicles 33 gives us two reasons why everyone, even those who are born again believers, must repent of their sins. The first reason we see in Manasseh's story that you must repent is that unless you do, you will not escape God's judgment. The first reason is that you must repent to escape God's judgment. Let's begin by reading Second uh, Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 9. Follow along as I read. Verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he made, he set in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your father's if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes and rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. These first nine verses show us that wickedness incurs God's anger. Wickedness incurs God's anger. The southern kingdom of Judah had many wicked kings, but Manasseh was worse than all of them. And the depths of his wickedness is even more astonishing when you look at uh, his father, Hezekiah. The first thing that Hezekiah did as king was to repair Solomon's temple, which had become uh, disrepaired and neglected from lack of use and filled with filth and trash. After he cleansed the temple of God, Hezekiah reinstated the celebration of Passover, which had not been celebrated in generations. And he even invited the northern tribes to come down to Judah and celebrate with them. Listen how the chronicler in chapter 30, verse 26, describes the joy of this occasion when those who were faithful from the northern tribes as well as others who were seeking God came to Judah and worshiped together once again. The chronicler says, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. Finally, when Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrian Empire, besieged Jerusalem, Hezekiah trusted God against all odds and saw God miraculously save them by sending an angel who killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers in a single night. Hezekiah's reign is like a breath of fresh air compared to the wickedness of the kings who preceded him, and he surely would have tried to train Manasseh to follow him in faithfulness to God. But Manasseh spurned his upbringing and undid in a single generation all the work that Hezekiah had done to bring Judah back to the true God. One facet of Manasseh's idolatry was the rite of child sacrifice to Moloch in the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, just outside of Jerusalem. In the 12th century A.D., the Jewish rabbi Rashi describes this rite of child sacrifice in horrific terms, and his description, whether it's historically accurate or not, has become the standard of describing this rite of child sacrifice to Moloch ever since. He describes the idol of Moloch as having arms outstretched as if to cradle a child and a fire was heated inside the statue, which then made the metal burn hot. Once the metal was hot, a living baby was placed in those arms, and priests beat on the drums to drown out the screams. Even if this depiction is not historically accurate, it can hardly exaggerate the monstrous atrocity of what Manasseh did in worshipping Moloch and in leading the people to participate in this as well. In addition to his idolatry, Manasseh practiced divination He consulted witches and necromancers and led the people to do these things after him. We can get an even fuller picture of Manasseh's wickedness from 2 Kings 21, which contains a parallel account of Manasseh's reign. This chapter adds that Manasseh shed much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. This could refer to uh, Manasseh killing his political opponents or his personal enemies, but it's also likely that some of Manasseh's victims were faithful prophets who spoke against him, including, if the legend is true, even the prophet Isaiah. But Manasseh's greatest sin was not his occultism, his murder, or even child sacrifice. These practices had been prevalent in Israel and Judah before him. But Manasseh was the first to build altars to these false gods inside the temple of Yahweh itself. Look back at verses 4 and 7 and see how they emphasize the abominable sacrilege that this act was. He's built altars to false gods in the temple, and verse 4 says, whereof the Lord had said in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he put an idol, which likely replaced the Ark of the Covenant in the house of God, of which he had said to David and Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the nations of Israel, of the, of the world, all the tribes of Israel, excuse me, I will put my name forever. God had proclaimed that from his temple in Jerusalem, his name would go out through all the world. But Manasseh defiled that temple and made it a place of pagan worship. It's no wonder that in Jeremiah 15.4, the prophet says that God will destroy the city of Jerusalem because of the sins of Manasseh. This destruction would come in the form of the Babylonian siege and captivity led by Nebuchadnezzar. Even the reforms of Manasseh's grandson, the good king, Josiah, were not enough to turn away God's wrath. His wickedness is summarized in 2 Chronicles 33 verse 9 by saying that he made the people of Judah to be more wicked than the Canaanites whom God had exterminated before Manasseh. Manasseh was not simply a bad king. He was an active enemy of Yahweh, as stubborn as Pharaoh, and more evil than the Canaanite kings whom God had wiped off the face of the earth. Small wonder, then, that Manasseh's extraordinary evil provoked God's anger. But in spite of this, God had not given up on Manasseh. Let's look now at verses 10 and 11. 2 Chronicles thirty-three ten and 11. They say, "...the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon." Unless you repent, you will not escape God's wrath. And refusal to repent incurs God's judgment. Refusal to repent incurs God's judgment. God spoke to Manasseh and the people through unnamed prophets, calling them to repent. But Manasseh did not listen, and therefore God's judgment fell on him. Manasseh's punishment for his wickedness came in the form of captivity in Babylon. And at this time in history, uh, the kingdom of Judah was a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, the emperor of the Assyrian Empire at this time was Ashurbanipal. And he had a younger brother who ruled over Babylon. This brother rebelled against his rule from the years 652 to 648 BC, which places this event um, just at the end of Manasseh's reign. It's very possible that Manasseh was suspected of being disloyal uh, to Assyria and loyal with Babylon. And for this reason, the Assyrian generals captured him and took him there to, um, to Babylon. When you consider Manasseh's egregious sins, it's no wonder that God brought punishment on him. And this is the lesson of the first part of Manasseh's story teaches us. If you refuse to repent, God will punish you. This statement is unequivocally true, but it also needs to be clarified. After all, it's also true that not every wicked person is punished in this life. The preacher in Ecclesiastes bemoans this fact in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 15. He says, There is a righteous man that perishes in righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Sometimes, oftentimes, in fact, wicked, evil men get away with it for their entire lives. Yet the book, of excuse me, the book of Ecclesiastes ends with this admonition. Fear God and keep his commandments, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. It's true that many people never answer for their wickedness on earth, but no one escapes death. And as Hebrews 9.27 says, after death, comes God's final judgment. Now, at this point, some of you might be wanting to stop me and say, hold on, Tim. Okay, sure, Manasseh deserves God's wrath and punishment, but I'm nothing like Manasseh. And you're right. At least I certainly hope you are. I certainly hope no one in here has offered their own children as a sacrifice or um, shed innocent blood or put an island inside God's temple. No one here has done those things, and I don't expect that anyone here is as wicked as Manasseh. Nevertheless, unless you have placed your faith in Christ and been born again, you have great cause to fear God's wrath. Turn with me briefly to Romans chapter one, verse 18. Romans 1:18. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. God's wrath is not reserved for the spectacularly evil. It is revealed against all sin, great and small. What are some examples of these sins that merit God's wrath? Skip down with me to verse 29 and follow along as I read. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they do, uh, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And verse 2-1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things the very same things as Manasseh. Look over this list again and how many times do you see yourself condemned? Not only murder, but coveting, deceiving, boasting, and disobeying parents all deserve God's wrath. You may not be as bad as Manasseh, but make no mistake, you are worthy of death. But thank God for His mercy and grace revealed to us in His Son. Look to Christ, who bore God's wrath and suffered on the cross so that you would not have to if you repent and believe. But be warned, God does not extend His grace forever. If you will not humble yourself and repent today by placing your faith in Christ, Someday it will be too late. But what about believers? Do those who have already trusted Christ for their salvation need to be afraid of God's wrath? Well, it's true that those who have been born again do not fear God's condemnation at death because Christ has already taken God's wrath for us. However, the author of Hebrews reminds you that Christians who live in sin experience God's chastisement in life. God calls believers to be holy and he punishes us in life as a father punishes his child to help us grow toward that. But believers also face judgment after death. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul reminds us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it be good Or evil. Paul also describes this judgment in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 15. Listen as I read these verses quickly, in which he says, "...each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss." though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The judgment seat of Christ is not the same as the great white throne judgment described in Revelation chapter 20. The judgment seat of Christ is exclusively for believers and is an evaluation of their deeds as a Christian to determine their reward. Believers judged at the seat of Christ are not in danger of God's wrath or of eternal punishment. But many born-again Christians will stand ashamed before their Savior, because rather than walking in the Spirit and living by Christ, they lived by their fleshly desires and did what they wanted with their own lives. Rather than serving Christ with their deeds and lives, they lived for their own selves and they will see their life's work wasted and burned up. Even the best employee feels a bit of trepidation when he's about to go in for his workers' evaluation with his boss. And Paul himself speaks of the judgment seat of Christ as the fear of the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Believers do not need to fear God's wrath. Nevertheless, we ought to live in the sobering reality of God's chastisement in life and the judgment seat of Christ after death. Now, if both believers and non-believers face their ultimate judgment after this life, then why are both punished in this world as well? Why does God give two different kinds of judgment, one in life and one after death? The reason is that God's punishment in this life is meant to lead us to repentance. And it was Manasseh's humiliating banishment to Babylon that paved the way for his remarkable redemption. A redemption that shows that God will forgive you but you must humble yourself and repent. The first reason that you must humble yourself is that if you don't, you will not escape God's wrath. Verses 12 through 20 of Second Chronicles chapter 33 give the second reason you must repent. Turn back with me to Second Chronicles chapter 33, and we'll read verses 12 through 20. Second Chronicles 12, or excuse me, Second Chronicles 33 verse 12 reads, And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and he heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. These two verses show us that genuine repentance will bring God's forgiveness. Genuine repentance does bring God's forgiveness. I find it difficult to think of a person with a larger list of crimes than Manasseh. But without regard to the grievousness of his sins, God willingly forgave even him. And when I think about this mercy to Manasseh, I'm reminded of a story that I heard several years ago out of Dallas, Texas. And I'm sure some of you are also uh, remember this story it made national headlines at the time. In 2018, a Dallas police officer named Amber Geiger shot and killed an innocent man named Botham Jean in his own apartment. Um, Amber Geiger and Botham Jean did not know each other, but they both lived in the same apartment complex, and Botham Jean lived in the apartment directly above Amber Geiger's own. And in a tragic mix-up, Geiger went to the wrong floor of the apartment complex and entered Jean's apartment, thinking that it was her own. When she saw a man whom she did not recognize in what she thought was her own home, she was afraid for her life, and she pulled out her gun and began yelling at him. And Botham Jean thought he was facing a home invasion, and so he got up and approached Geiger and was yelling back. And Geiger shot Botham Jean. When soon as she realized her mistake, she called 911 and she began performing CPR, but she could not save him. Both of them Jean died, and she had killed him. It was just a horribly tragic situation, and Amber Geiger showed very deep remorse for her mistake. There's footage of her both before the trial, in an interview and during the trial, in which she's profusely weeping. Um, and even goes so far as to say that she wishes that she and Botham Jean could have switched places, saying that, you know, I wish that I had been the one that died for my mistake, rather than Jean. But in the midst of all this tragedy, God's grace was profoundly displayed by Botham Jean's younger brother, Brant Jean. During the trial, Brant Jean was given a a time to speak, and with great emotion, he told Geiger that he hoped she went to God with her guilt and all the wrong that she had done in the past. He told her that if she was truly sorry, he forgave her for killing both them, and that if she asked God, God would forgive her as well. He even went so far as to ask if he could hug Geiger, and the, the woman who had killed his brother and he embraced in front of the courtroom as the onlookers wiped tears from their eyes. It was a powerful scene to watch. Amber Geiger showed deep regret for her actions, and the power of the gospel in Brant Jean's life gave him the ability to forgive her when he saw that remorse. And in the same way, just as Jean was moved by Amber Geiger's deep sorrow and remorse, God is not unmoved by a repentant heart. And he is certainly able to forgive any who repent and come before him in humility, even someone as guilty as Manasseh. If God heard the prayer of Manasseh and forgave him, then there is no person God is unwilling to forgive. You may be here today as a born-again Christian who is struggling with guilt. And as a Christian, as Christians, we ought to feel guilt when we sin. But no Christian needs to live in bondage to guilt. Christ has already taken God's wrath in your place. And if you put your faith in Him, you are righteous in the eyes of the Father. As Paul tells us in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God himself has justified us. If you as a believer in Christ repent of your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you, says 1 John 1, 1.9. Perhaps you're here as someone who is not a Christian and like John Bunyan, you've not put your faith in Christ and repented because you do not believe God will forgive you. Friend, nothing could be further from the truth. Do not be deceived and excuse yourself from repenting because you think you are too far gone. There is no such thing as a person too wicked for God if he repents. Additionally, Manasseh's repentance teaches us to never give up on someone no matter how wicked they may be. Think of that person right now, someone in your life who you think could never accept the gospel. It's not too late for them. God can draw anyone to himself, no matter how wicked. So continue to pray for them and continue to plant seeds. Hezekiah never lived to see Manasseh repent of his sins. And you may never live to see the fruit of your labor. But don't give up on that person. You never know what God will do and no one is beyond the hope of salvation. We've established that God will forgive you if you genuinely repent. So if genuine repentance is necessary to forgiveness, then we must understand what genuine repentance actually is. The rest of Manasseh's story defines this true repentance. But the first key component of true repentance is actually something we've already looked at. Look with me again at 2 Chronicles 33, verse 12. That verse says that Manasseh humbled himself greatly. True repentance requires humility. And refusal to repent or admit wrongdoing is a symptom of pride. You know, we've all heard bad apologies before. Something like, I'm sorry you feel that way about what I said. Or, I'm sorry that happened to you. You know, I've said apologies like that. You've said apologies like that. We've all said and given and received apologies like that. Why are those bad apologies? They're bad because they don't accept any culpability. In fact, they actually blame the other person. I'm sorry you feel that way about what I said. But we've all said that before. We've all offered apologies like that before. Why is it so hard to just say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? It's hard to say those words because those are very humbling words to say, and we are proud people. But if you are going to receive God's forgiveness, you must humble yourself and admit that you have done wrong. It took the humiliating experience of captivity and being led like an animal with a hook through his nose to humble Manasseh. What will it take to break your pride? God will certainly forgive you if you humble yourself and repent. And humility is a key factor of true repentance. There is a second aspect of true repentance, and that is that it leads to change in a person's life. In other words, genuine repentance brings reformation. Genuine repentance brings reformation. Let's now turn our attention to verses 14 through 20 of Second Chronicles 33. Verse 14 says, After he, afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon, in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel, and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods, and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord, and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city, And he restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel, and his prayer, and how God was moved by his entreaty, and all his sin and his faithlessness, and the sites on which he built high places and set up the asherim and the images, before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon his son reigned in his place." Manasseh begins his reformed life by strengthening the defenses of the city of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. And if this were all that happened, we would have reason to doubt his sincerity. But Manasseh also attempted to rectify his sins. He removed the idols and altars he put in God's temple, and he offered sacrifices to God, and commanded the people to worship God alone. Unfortunately, these attempts at reform were only partly successful. Although the people, for the most part, returned to worshiping God, they continued to worship at the high places where they once had worshipped the Baals. Based on this, it seems that most of the people did not wholly convert back to the worship of God, but instead syncretized Canaanite religious practices with the worship of God. But even though his reforms were short-lived and not fully successful, Manasseh made genuine effort to reform the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. And because of this, he is an example of someone who truly repented and received forgiveness and restoration. Manasseh's Reformation gives us an example of how true repentance works. We've all witnessed scenarios where a guilty party um, offered an apology, not because they're actually sorry for what they did, but because they wanted to get out of some kind of consequence. Um, This kind of fake repentance is very easy to spot in other people. But it's often more difficult to see in your own self. I've found in my own life that oftentimes I treat God's forgiveness cheaply. Um, I catch myself acting selfishly or thinking proudly about myself, comparing myself to someone else. And I know I shouldn't have done that, so I quickly pray a prayer and ask God for forgiveness and kind of move on with my day because that's that. And I don't really make any effort beyond that because it wasn't really a big deal in my mind do you also experience this tendency to just quickly pray and move on, ask God for forgiveness and say "I'm sorry I did that and move on and again I'm not, I'm not criticizing the quickly praying and asking for forgiveness that's a very good thing to do and I hope you all do do that. The problem is if our repentance only stops at a quick prayer asking for forgiveness and doesn't move on to an attempt to reform our lives and genuine sorrow over our actions, that is not true repentance. True repentance is followed by change, and if you do not attempt to change your actions, you have not repented. That's not to say that you can always overcome habitual sin in an instant either, though. Breaking sinful patterns takes diligence and the power of God. You may need the help of a counselor or a seasoned believer to help you overcome multi-layered and complex sin habits. That's quite normal. You can't do it on your own, and you won't always see immediate victory over sin. But as Paul says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Ask God to strengthen you, and like Manasseh, cast out everything in your life that causes you to stumble. The story of Manasseh is a story that has been repeated in the lives of countless others, of whom John Bunyan is only one. In his autobiography, "Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners," Bunyan writes this amazing statement: "Great sins do draw out great grace, and where guilt is most terrible and fierce, there, the mercy of Christ, the mercy of God in Christ, when showed to the soul appears most high and mighty. This is the lesson of Manasseh. God will forgive you, but you must humble yourself and repent. There is no person whom God will not forgive if he does this. Manasseh's life shows that there are two reasons you must repent, to be forgiven and to avoid God's punishment. It also shows us that genuine repentance requires humility and results in reformation. Have you placed your faith in Christ for salvation? And not merely just an intellectual affirmation that Christ died for you, but a saving faith that has resulted in repentance of sin and a changed life. If you are a believer, humility and repentance must be the daily and constant practice of your entire life. Does your life exhibit a spirit of humility and repentance? When was the last time that you repented for something in your life and your life actually changed as a result. Do not be content with merely polite apologies to God. Pray for the humility to repent and for the power of the Spirit to help you change. Let's pray quickly. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the lesson of Manasseh that your amazing grace reaches out to anyone who will repent and believe. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Give us the strength to repent. Give us the humility to change our ways, to admit our wrongdoing. Encourage us to live for you and that we might remember that the steps of a good man are ordered by you and though he may fall, he will not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Please uphold us and strengthen us to grow in our sanctification with you. In your name we pray this, amen.